Well, good morning again. Welcome to The Grove. We are in week number five of a sermon series all about the Apostles' Creed. Now, if you're a little unfamiliar with the Apostles' Creed this morning, that's okay. It is kind of an ancient document, a collection of the essentials, the core of the Christian faith. It was developed uh, almost 1,500 years ago, and it has been passed down from generation to generation of Christian believers because it contains the essentials, what we believe is the essence, the kind of the very core of what Christians profess to believe. Now, when we look over the creed, what we recognize is it doesn't, it's not exhaustive. It doesn't contain every detail that would help us in every situation in our life, and that's intentional. Because there's a lot of areas uh, in terms of practice and application of our faith that there's a lot of room for interpretation. But when it comes to what all Christians across time and history and geography, what they all have in common are these statements of belief. And the reason that we're spending so much time on the creed is because it's easy to get distracted and caught up in the minutia of the application of our faith where it you know, matter, where the rubber meets the road, how it matters, how we live out our faith. It's easy to spend a lot of time there, and we should, but not at the expense of forgetting the things that all Christians profess to believe. And so we're walking through this creed line by line, kind of unpacking these ideas, because what we've said from the very beginning is that we need to do more than just know what the creed says. Believing, the creed is a statement of beliefs, believing in what the creed contains is not an intellectual assent. It's not just I hold that all of these ideas are factually true or theologically true. It's more than that. It's a commitment. It's a placing our trust in, committing our lives to uh, the, the reality that these truths convey. And so for the last four weeks, we have been walking through this creed line by line. And in the beginning, it's, it's kind of broken up into three sections if you've ever looked at it. And at the end of the message, we'll say the creed together and you'll notice this. But it's broken up into three sections. And the first section is related to God. The next section is related to Jesus Christ, who he is and the work that he has done in the world. And then the last section is related to the Holy Spirit. And what we've said is we kind of talked about these three categories of these are all expressions of God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And last week, Allie introduced this idea of the Holy Spirit being God's new revelation in the world, how we can experience God here and now. The Holy Spirit is at work in us as believers in Jesus Christ, empowering us, regenerating us, inspiring us, sanctifying us, all of the different adjectives that she used in the acronym last week, helping us become more like the person of Jesus Christ. And so this week, we're going to look at what flows out of the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And it's these words that are maybe the most confusing of all of the creed. So let's look at these. So Allie talked last week about I believe in the Holy Spirit. For some of you, you've been waiting all series for us to explain what these next words mean. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of saints. Now it's easy for us to kind of understand these words in terms of how they've evolved over time. When we think I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, particularly in a non-Catholic church, it's like, well, this seems a little confusing. Why do we need to profess our belief in the Roman Catholic Church? And that's just not what the word means. It's not a noun. It's actually used as an adjective. And so what I want to do in our time this morning is just to unpack each of the words that we say in the creed, what they mean and why it actually matters. And so we'll start at the very beginning. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Now, when we use this word holy... What we're saying is not that the church is filled with a bunch of really righteous people. 
people who don't make mistakes, people who are practically perfect. That's not what we're saying. Because if that was true, then none of us would be allowed in the building. Am I right? Especially me. I mean, like, chief among all of you. And so that's not what we're saying when we talk about belief in the holy church. What we're saying is this word, it indicates, particularly in a biblical sense, in a biblical context, this word holy just means set apart. It's different. It's special in some way. And in particular, it's set apart, not just in and of and for itself, but it's set apart for God. God has done something with the church that he has set us apart for a specific reason. And we're going to look at that reason here in a second when we walk through some passages of scripture. But this is what this idea means. It's not, it's not an identity that we possess based on the way that we live our life or how perfect we are. Now, it's something that we should strive towards. It's kind of a goal that we should try to move towards more holiness. But again, holiness doesn't mean perfection. Holiness means being more and more set apart for God. And so this has kind of implications into every aspect and facet of our lives. Church isn't just this place that we go. It's not a physical building. It's an identity of a group of people who have been set apart for a specific task. And the way that we become more holy as a church is we become more and more set apart for God's intended purpose. Now, it's easy to look around, particularly in America, and see lots of churches who don't seem to have that specific purpose anymore. Churches who are all about some cult of personality are all focused on their own kind of you know, benefit. They kind of have these closed doors and it's all about what's good for the members of this church. They function a lot of times like country clubs in a way too. It's easy for churches to drift towards that. But if we're truly to live into this creed and the identity that it sets out for us, the question shouldn't be what's best for us or what's best for the pastor or you know, how do we get the most benefit out of this place? The question is really, how can we be more and more aligned to what God wants to do through us? How, we, how can we be more committed to the ways that God has set us apart for something? And again, we'll talk about what that something is. So that's this first word, holy. That's kind of what it means to be a holy church. This next word, the most confusing word, is this word Catholic. Again, it's used as an adjective in this case, not a noun. It's not talking about the Roman Catholic Church. See, this creed existed almost 600 years before the Roman Catholic Church existed. And so in its origination, it couldn't have referred to something that didn't come about until 600 years later. And so what it means in this sense, and you'll notice the capitalization or the lack thereof in this word Catholic, is because it's using it as an adjective to describe this idea that in the original Greek, what it's talking about is a church that is everywhere. In essence, it's a church that exists In America, in Asia, in Africa, in South America, it exists all over the world. It also exists across the dimension of time. And so what we say when we profess belief in a holy Catholic church is that we believe that there is one larger universal church that exists everywhere and has existed since the beginning of Jesus's creation of it. It's not belief in the Roman Catholic church or particular sect of church. It's belief in this idea that all Christians, despite our differences, despite our denominational names or our doctrinal statements or the way that you know, we baptize babies or don't baptize babies or whether or not you can actually eat good bread at communion or you get those chalk wafers, it doesn't matter how your expression of Christianity 
is realize what we're talking about is this idea that we're all a part of something much larger and bigger than ourselves. And once again, I think it's important for us to remember this because it is so easy to focus on the things that make us different from other churches, from other expressions of the Christian faith. We do the same thing as people. When you meet somebody new, it's easiest to point out the ways that they're not like you. They're not your kind of person. It's the same thing that happens in churches. And so it's easy for us to, be, to focus on the ways that we can differentiate ourselves from everybody else. But the early church fathers and mothers recognized the importance of remembering that we're a part of something bigger than ourselves. Because when we focus on all of the ways that we're different, we miss the focus and the purpose that we have been called to. And again, this is how all of these words work and play together. When we focus on our differences, when we forget the fact that we are a Catholic universal church that exists everywhere, it is easy to forget why we have been set apart, for the reasons for which God has called this group of people together. And then this last word is the word church. And this is actually, I think, even though it's, not, it's the most familiar, I think it is the one that causes us the most trouble in language. And the reason I say this is because at the time that this word was used, it doesn't mean what we now mean when we say this word church. When we talk about the church, it is so easy to think about the physical location that a church exists. We ask each other questions like, what church do you go to? Not what church are you a part of? What church do you belong? It's, it's oftentimes about a physical location. Where do you go to church? Oh, we didn't go to church yesterday. Or instead of going to church, we watched church online. You know, some of those things that we do. Because it's easy to associate with a physical building. But like we say each and every week here at the Grove, and you'll hear it a little bit later in the service, as we end our service, it's really important that we want to remind you that the church is not a building. The church is not a worship service, but the church is a group of people who go and live their life and faith out into the world. That's really what it means. And that's what we see this word church meaning in, English, or in Greek. You know, the very first time that it is used, it occurs in the Gospel of Matthew. And this is the passage that we looked at the very first sermon in this series when Jesus asked his disciples the question, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds that you are you are Jesus, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the Son of God. And then Jesus says to Peter, on this rock I will build my, and the word he uses has been translated into English as church. It's just this word ecclesia. It was not a religious word at the time. It just means an assembly. It just means a gathering of people. So whether it was in a synagogue or it was in a Christian home at the time or it was for a civic function, anytime there was a group of people who were gathered together, it was described as an ecclesia. But what's different about the church is that Jesus calls it my church. On this rock, I will build my church. There's an ownership. There's a possession that this assembly is Jesus's assembly. And this is kind of the other way that we see this word church used. And this is actually where we get the word church from. There's this word koreikon, which is also used in the New Testament to describe the church. And what it means is those who belong to the Lord. It's the same idea as the word holy. And so there's kind of multiple references in this creedal statement that we are a group of people, we are a gathering, an assembly of people who belong to God. Now, this word kuriekon gets translated into German as kirsch, which gets translated into English as church. And so that's where this word comes from. This is the origin that it has in Scripture. 
It's describing a group of people that Jesus has called for a purpose, for a specific reason, to be different than the rest of the world. This is what we see Jesus doing with this word church. And so when we talk about, I believe, in the holy Catholic church, what we're affirming and reaffirming and reminding ourselves of is that we don't belong to an association. We don't belong to a specific geographical location or building, but it's an identity that we possess when the people of God come together. You can also hear it described in the New Testament as the body of Christ because there's a body of people who have taken on an identity, being called and set apart, who belong to God. This is kind of what we see happening in the very first kind of instances of the church being formed. And we read all about it in the book of Acts. The Acts is really just a collection of the writings, the history, the accounts of the very first church. And so what we see is there's no church while Jesus is present. Jesus imparts some truth and wisdom to his disciples, and then he leaves. And then what happens next is there's an experience of the Holy Spirit. And this is what begins to shape and mold the church. And so let me tell you a little bit about it. So if you have your phones, you can pull them out if you want to read along. If not, I'm happy to read it to you. But we're in Acts chapter 1, verse 1. This is what the writer of Acts says. In the first book, Theophilus, now, the writer of Acts is also the writer of Luke. They were kind of written as kind of a a double kind of album. It was two parts of one larger story. The first part of the story is the life and ministry of Jesus, and then the second part of the story is the ministry of Jesus once Jesus is no longer here. And so this is what the writer of Acts is saying. In the first book, Theophilus, who he wrote this book for, he says, I wrote all about what Jesus did and taught from the beginning. Until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Those are just the disciples, his followers. After Jesus' suffering, he he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And so this is what the writer of Acts is saying. He said, listen, I wrote all about the ministry of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and then the resurrection of Jesus in the first book. While Jesus was staying with his, his followers and his disciples, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. And then this is what I want to look at. This, he said, is what you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so what we talked about last week with the Holy Spirit is when Jesus was here, Jesus was the revelation, the incarnation of God on the earth. But when Jesus ascends to heaven, there has to be a new revelation and incarnation of God on the earth for us to experience. And that's the Holy Spirit. And this is what we see happening. Jesus says, when I'm God gone, something new will come from God. It'll be a gift to you. And it's called the Holy Spirit. It is God's power at work in your life. So... In verse 6, this is what happens next. So when they had come together, they asked Jesus, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? And he replied, it's not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. Don't try to predict the end times. A lot of people miss those verses. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. 
you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is the purpose that Jesus leaves with his followers, and he leaves for us today, and the lineage of Christianity that connects us to them. There's a purpose. There's going to be an anointing of the Holy Spirit. We will experience God's power in our life so that we can then go out and witness what Jesus has done in the world. It doesn't just mean, you know, the sandwich boards, you know, on the, you know where all the, the bars are and, you know, the megaphone. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be that. It can be more subtle. It can be more relational. But it's how we bear witness to the work that God is doing in our life to the other people in our lives. This is what Jesus calls his early followers to and what he calls us to today. This is what it means to be the church. It means to be a group of people called out by God, empowered by God to live out their faith in the world in relationship to other people. Now, once this happens, a couple of verses later, what you see is there's a lot of people who are gathered together to celebrate this Jewish festival and holiday called Pentecost. And what Pentecost is, it was just 49 days after Passover. So they liked numbers back then and they thought numbers were significant. And so it was seven days after, Pente- after Passover, seven times, so 49 days. So every seven days they counted it. Once they got to 49, they're like, all right, we've got seven times seven. Seven is the number of perfection and wholeness and completion. We are at the perfect wholeness and completion and fulfillment of what God did at Passover, and now something new is happening in the world. This is what the Jewish faith believes, that there was something special or different that was going to happen at Pentecost. And then all of Jesus' followers are gathered in the upper room, and there's a rush of the Holy Spirit upon them. And Ali kind of described what that looked like. There were tongues of fire, and it was all a little mystical, and there were a lot of people from all different areas gathered together, and those people began speaking in languages that they didn't know but that other people could hear. And it was this way that the the gospel of Jesus Christ was communicated to everyone who was in that room because of the way that they spoke, that they were able to translate and communicate this message of the gospel to everyone in that room. So in that moment, we see the first instance of the Holy Spirit empowering the followers of Jesus Christ. And this begins and initiates and ushers in the start of the church. And so what I think is important is to look at what happens next. But before we do, we have to understand the second part of the creed. And it's this phrase, the communion of saints. Now, it's easy for us, again, influenced by kind of the evolution of the Roman Catholic Church and and their kind of focus on praying to the saints, that when we think about the communion of saints, is is it like about Mary and, you know, the saints that we pray to in the Catholic Church? That's not what it means. The saints just a term that is described the holy people or holy people of God. And so it was just a way of describing those followers of God. And so... If the writers of the New Testament who use those words saints were here today, they would describe us as the saints of Dallas. We're just the followers of Jesus, the people of God here in Dallas. It was not unique to some special attribute that they possessed. Now, that has evolved and changed, and that understanding is different in the Catholic Church. But in the universal church, the little c Catholic Church, the understanding is that the saints just refer to the people of God. And this word communion, we talk about when we celebrate the sacrament of communion, but it really just means a fellowship. And so what we say, when, what we mean when we say, I believe in the communion of saints, is I believe in the importance of the fellowship of God's people. I believe 
that God's people are called to be a group of people who fellowship together, who commune together. Another word for this, another way it's described in the New Testament is family. This is why you see oftentimes in the writings in the New Testament, they describe the followers of God, the people of the church, as brothers and sisters. It's because there's this connotation, like in High School Musical, that we're all in this together. You will, I've kind of ruined the creed for some of you, but that's what it means. It just means we're a big family, and not just this local instance of a family, but all Christians, all across the world, throughout all time, we're all a part of one larger family. We're, we are a part of the family of God. We are God's witnesses here on this earth. And so once the Holy Spirit comes and begins this church, this is what we see happening in the lives of those very first group of people. So this is in Acts chapter 2, right after the Holy Spirit has come, starting in verse 42, if you're still following along. If you're on Instagram, come back to us. You know who you are. All right. Acts 2, 42. They, these followers, these saints, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, this word devoted uh, is different than kind of the way that we use devoted. What it means is they begin to develop new habits new rhythms, new ways of understanding how to be and how to live into this identity that they've been called. So anytime you've picked up a new hobby, you have devoted yourself to a new practice, to a new series of habits. Uh, One of the strange things about me is I've had lots of different hobbies throughout my life, and I kind of go all in on these hobbies, and then I give them up in about four months. And so I've had lots of different periods of my life where I've been all about very specific things. So there was a period of my life where I was all about like backpacking in the outdoors. And then there was a period of my life where I was all about rock climbing. And then there was this weird period where I was all about archery and bow hunting. And then this period where I was all about gardening. And you can just, in my closets, you can just see evidence of all of the past hobbies that I've had. But in those moments when I've tried to adopt and pick up those hobbies, I, I don't know if this is what you do, but the way that you get good at a hobby is you got to buy all the gear, right? That's the way all, of, all the wives are like elbowing the husbands. You're like, yeah, that's what you do, and you don't use any of it. Guilty. Because I'm trying to devote myself to this new practice, to this new habit, because I want to take on the identity of a rock climber or a bow hunter or a gardener or whatever the thing is that I've decided that I want to be for the next four months of my life. This is the same thing that we see the disciples doing in this moment. They're learning what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. They're learning what it means to be a group of people who have been called out, set apart, who are holy, who are different, to be Jesus' witnesses in the world. And so what are the ways that they're learning to do it? What are the rhythms, the routines, the drills that they're going through to learn how to be a follower of Jesus? They describe it here in verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. There was kind of an educational, instructional component to it. You can't learn how to do something that you don't know how to do unless you expose yourself to how you're supposed to do it. So they listened to the apostles' teaching, and they devoted themselves to fellowship, gathering together, being in relationship and sharing life with each other. They focused on these things. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Now, it'll explain this a little bit later, but this idea of breaking bread was just sharing meals together. 
But not everybody kind of was of the same economic status. And so what it really was was a way to ensure that everybody had what everybody needed. Now, some of you are going to get nervous in a second when we read about kind of the details of this and you, you fear socialism, but that's not really what it was talking about. It's not like a government mandate, but it's really about recognizing that if we're family, we're called to make sure that everybody has their needs met. We're called to take care of the people around us. And so if we've got a lot, we have to be on the lookout for the people who have little. If we're strong, we have to be watchful and mindful of the people who are weak. We're part of this together. You don't just leave a brother or sister out there to struggle on their own. And so they practiced this with their meals, with the way that they came together. And then, lastly, to the prayers. So these were kind of the habits that we see this early church kind of following. They would gather together. They would focus on how they could grow together to become more like the example of Jesus Christ. And then they would focus on how they could take care of the other people around them. They focused on giving back. Now, if that sounds a little bit familiar, it's because we put it on a big sign right there to try to remind us that this is what we're called to be as a church. We're called to be a group of people who devote themselves to the practice of gathering together, of growing and learning, practicing what it means to take on the identity of a witness of Jesus Christ. And then as we understand that identity in greater fullness, we realize that we're a family and we take care of the people around us. And so they explain it in a little more detail in the following verses. In verse 44, all who believed, not just intellectually, but all who committed their lives to this, were together and they had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Now here, I wanna focus on this one part because there's kind of two categories in which they spend time together. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, this was in large gatherings. They spent time kind of in this temple mount area, which was this really wide open area that you could have put hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people in. And so they gathered in large groups. That was important to them. This is where they would do worship. This is where they would kind of gain instruction. This is where they would learn and receive their education. And they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts. They found their ways into smaller groups, ways where they could actually share their life, do their life together. It's good that we gather together as a, as a larger group of people, but it's really hard to be intimate with this many people. The way that you do that, the way that you actually grow in relationship with one another is in smaller groups. This is why we have growth groups. And if you were here last week, you saw a really cool illustration of this. We had four families baptized their little ones. These families didn't know each other prior to coming to this church, but they didn't meet just by coming to worship. They met because they joined a group, and it was in this group that they began to do life with each other. They began to share with one another. They began to grow in a different way, and it kind of culminated, and they're, you know, they're not done, but it's culminating in this beautiful expression last week where we got to baptize their children all together because this is how we learn how to be witnesses and followers and disciples of Jesus Christ. This is what it means to learn how to be a family. There was another really powerful example of this for me this week. Uh, we had a death in the family of one of the families here at the Grove. And Allie and I presided over the funeral service this week. And um, 
What was so powerful for me was this service was not held here. It was held in a different church building. But when I walked into that building, it was filled with people from this church. It was filled with a church. It's what it means to be the church. It means to care for each other. It means to show up for one another. It means to recognize that when others are down, we come alongside them. I was having a conversation with one of you just before service started, and you were sharing with me kind of one of the maxims you live by, and it says, if you walk ahead, I may not follow, and if you walk behind, I may not lead, but walk beside me, and we can walk together. That's what it means. This is what we're called to do as followers of Jesus. And so it's easy for us to get focused on, I got to attend church. I got to go to church. Wake up in the morning, you're running late, the kids aren't ready. Uh, We're not going to make it to church on time. And I get that. I get that. When I have Sundays off, I lay there and I'm like, oh, this is why nobody goes to church. (laughs) I I mean, I, I understand. But when we don't come to this building, we miss the opportunity to actually get to participate and to be the church. And if you have been coming to this building, I hope that in the months that follow as groups become open again, that you will find your way into a group because it is the next step in how you understand what it means to be a witness of Jesus Christ in the world, sharing your life with other people, learning and growing in a smaller environment. And so when we say these words of the creed, we talk about, I believe in the holy Catholic church and the communion of saints, what we are doing is reminding ourselves of who we're called to be as followers of Jesus Christ who God has asked us to be. Because when we come together, learn about how we can live more like Jesus, and then actually go and do it, it changes the world. This is what changed the world in the very beginning. Christianity was just this small group of early followers. How's it grown from that to three billion people in the world's largest religion? At some point, and at different points in time, is because the followers of Jesus Christ actually did this. They actually took it seriously about what it meant to be holy, to be called out for something, for a specific reason, to allow that calling to impact how they choose to live their lives, the decisions they make with their time, their resources, their energies, their relationships, to impact those things, to continue to be vulnerable and intentional and relational with those people who are part of their local expression of faith, to learn how to be a better witness of Jesus Christ, a more full witness of Jesus Christ, to allow the Holy Spirit to begin to work inside of them, empowering them, changing them, and making them more like the person of Jesus Christ. And then they didn't just leave it in the building. They take it out into the world, and they demonstrate it. They live it out, and they share it with other people. The church, us as a group of people living out our faith in the world, I believe is the single most powerful force in this world. And my prayer is that we can begin to live into it in greater and greater measure. I'm so grateful to be your pastor and to get to be a part of this church with you. And so as we end this message and as we kind of wrap up this service, I want to invite you to stand because we're going to say these words of the creed again like we do each and every week. And as we come to those lines about the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of saints, May we just add a little bit of inflection, like we're at the Dallas Stars game when we get to the national anthem part. 
So let's say these words together as we reaffirm what it is that we have committed our lives to. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let me pray for us. God, you have called us to be a holy Catholic Church, a group of people called out by you for your purposes in the world. God, remind us of who you call us to be. Encourage us to recommit to gathering together, to growing in greater fullness in you, and then of treating each other like family as we make sure that everybody is taken care of. God, the church is your body here in this world. It is your expression, your incarnation of your spirit in this place. You work through us. We are your partners in this work, and we are grateful for the opportunity to be so. God, fill us again with your spirit. Empower us to live as followers of you. And may the world be better because of it. I pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.